Welcome to AMR Trains, a podcast about training and racing and endurance sports. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner. Today we're headed into your stomach and intestines and into the ubiquitous row of porta potties at every race start. I'm talking to Dr. Patrick Wilson, author of the newly released book, The Athlete's Gut, The Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition, and Stomach Distress. Dr. Wilson is the Assistant Professor of Exercise Science at Old Dominion University, where he also directs the Human Performance Laboratory. He earned a bachelor's degree in dietetics from Minnesota State University and a master's and doctoral degrees in exercise physiology from the University of Minnesota. Uh, Patrick lives with his family, including about a one and a half to two year old <laughs> um, in Norfolk, Virginia. Welcome Patrick, how are you doing today? Thanks for the invite. I'm doing quite well, Dimity. I'm glad to, to talk to you about this uh, issue because it's, you know, something that affects a lot of athletes. So it's a fun, if not sometimes, you know, gross topic to talk, uh, talk about on occasion. Oh, absolutely. We have um, around another mother runner, we have TMI Tuesdays, too much information Tuesdays. Yeah. So like nothing, nothing's off topic around here. Um, but before we get into this, we want to know a little bit about yourself, Patrick. What, um, what's your athletic background and, and what do you like to do these days for exercise? I grew up playing basketball across country. Uh, in college, I did more distance running. You know, I never really, I never got to the point where I was doing ultra marathons or anything like that. The longest I've done is a half. I was training for a full, but had some injury issues. You know, I don't know, my, my body's built to handle a lot of mileage. So, uh, but yeah, I've had a, a wide range of athletic experiences, but, you know, distance running something that I've done for years. Uh-huh. You know, in terms of my education background, I started off in the nutrition realm, you know, getting my dietetics degree, getting my RD credential, never really practiced fully. I mean, I, I did some counseling here and there while I was in grad school, but by the time I got to grad school, I, I kind of figured out I wanted to do teaching and research, and that's where most of my, you know, time and effort had been focused for the last, um, you know, four or five years there in Minnesota, and then went to Nebraska for a year where I did a postdoc in sport nutrition. And then I moved out here to Norfolk in 2015. So I've been here, you know, about five years. Uh, so I study sports nutrition stuff, certainly gut issues and athletes uh, among, among a few other things that I'll um, take a look at scientifically. Totally. Well, and so what piqued your interest in the relationship between exercise and, and gut issues? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I try and go back and think about my path to getting here and it was kind of a slow journey in that, you know, from my dissertation, I did a couple of studies that looked at a topic somewhat related to gut issues. So it's on multiple transportable carbohydrates. Just, it's a basically a strategy where if you're like a marathoner or a cyclist who's doing really prolonged stuff, if you're trying to ingest a lot of carbohydrate during that exercise, it may be helpful to ingest a mixture of sugar types because different sugars use different transporters to be absorbed in the gut. So I did a study on that um, for my dissertation. And then from there, just kind of continued to go into different uh, sort of areas related to the gut. More recently, I've kind of looked at some of the psychological aspects of gut issues in athletes. There's kind of been a slow progression over time. And it was a couple of years ago where I kind of decided I want to write a book. I don't really know where that sort of motivation came from. Sure. But I kind of took a look around and there's a lot of sport nutrition books already. So I felt like just doing a pure sport nutrition book wasn't necessarily a great idea um, unless the idea was really unique. 
And I kind of ended up figuring out there's not really any comprehensive resources for athletes on gut issues. And from there, I kind of just took off and started writing the book. It took me about a year and a half. Um, and obviously, it came out recently. So uh, it's been certainly a journey in the, the writing process and the editing process and all that. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's not a small feat for sure. Um, and uh, and it is a very comprehensive look. I mean, I have to say, like, I, I mean, I've earmarked a ton of pages, but you really did a deep, deep dive going through the whole digestive system, going through so many different um, sim- symptoms and, and strategies. And we're not going to have enough time to, uh, you know, dive super deep. So we have more of a bird's eye view looking at the average kind of middle of the pack runner and the issues that, that they may face. Mm-hmm. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably am, <laughs> but there seem to be two major physiological acts that influence stomach distress. The first being reduced blood flow to the gut. That happens when you exercise naturally. And then the, and then the second, the amount of time it takes the gut or the stomach to empty when you are exercising. I mean, is that dialing it down too basically? And certainly those two things contribute to symptoms. Uh, it, it kind of depends to some extent on what symptoms you look at. I would say that especially the delayed gastric emptying or stomach emptying, that's going to play a, obviously a larger role in like the upper symptoms, you know, regurgitation, reflux, fullness, nausea. The reduced gut blood flow, gut, uh, gut blood flow is one of those physiological things that happens with exercise that can probably make most symptoms worse, including ones that affect the lower half of your gut as well. But yeah, the gut blood flow thing is something I talk about in many of the chapters in the book because it is something that we think certainly plays a role. So just as like a basic overview, you know, when you start exercising, particularly when it's of a more intense variety, your body's going to release these stress hormones, catecholamines they're called, that help to redirect blood flow to the muscle so that the muscle can get the lion's share of oxygen, nutrients that are needed to sustain muscular contraction. So that means blood flow to the gut to a large extent is going to be reduced because digestion for the most part isn't the priority at that time. So those reductions in gut blood flow are more pronounced when the exercise is really intense. Mm -hmm. They're probably more pronounced when someone is psychologically stressed Uh, more pronounced when someone maybe uses a lot of stimulants like caffeine uh, and as exercise duration gets really long. So think maybe like an ultra runner or somebody even doing a marathon is going to probably have potentially more blood flow compromise than somebody who does um, something short, uh, shorter at an equal intensity. But yeah, I mean, obviously there's lots of different potential causes, but uh, you know, those are a couple of the physiological changes that I talk about in the book that, you know, contribute to many of the symptoms that athletes can experience. Okay. Um, so, uh, so like I just said, you spend, you know, 260 detailed and beautifully researched pages on the athlete's gut. So hopefully this request that I'm about to ask of you isn't too demeaning. Um, but <laughs> one of author Michael Pollan's main rules for eating is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Like, can you distill like three main things for um, again, like middle of the pack, back of the pack runners yeah. um, for, for best practices. Yeah, that, that's, you know, it's a challenge. I would say in terms of really broad recommendations that you can kind of take to the bank, one would be, uh, you know, practice what you're doing multiple times in training so that 
if you're doing it during a competition, which I know a lot of people are not competing right now, but you know, in, in a world where you are doing more competitions, practicing that repeatedly with you know, the products and the formulations and the concentrations and everything that you intend to use during a race is, is obviously gonna be a smart choice. Um, one of the other things that I think is really sometimes underutilized maybe would be some of the psychological interventions. Mm -hmm. Because there's this really strong link between our gut and our brain. Uh, the vagus nerve regulates a lot of that. There's actually a lot of signals that go from your gut back up to your brain. So it's, you know, it's not a surprise to say that people who have more stress and anxiety in their everyday life tend to also have more gut issues. Mm -hmm. But in the last couple of years, I've published some studies that show that connection also exists for athletes and it um, can impact the GI symptoms they experience not only during training, but also during competition. And one of those, you know, one of the things with the psychological aspect is that it's kind of like the gut blood flow thing. And that when an athlete is overly anxious or stressed, it seems to make most symptoms worse. And what it may be doing is making people kind of hypersensitive to all sorts of pains, perceptions, and bodily sensations. So there's a something called visceral hypersensitivity that's been documented in people with like IBS and dyspepsia, okay. where they're just more sensitive to their environment, including things that you put into their gut. And what you see in some trials or uh, experiments is that if you do things like deep breathing or mindfulness or some of those other psychological interventions, it not only reduces anxiety, but in at least in people with like IBS and dyspepsia, it reduces some of their gut problems. And it may be a reduction in kind of their hypersensitivity to, to stimuli. So that's at least for people who have more stress and anxiety, I think that's a fairly easy starting point is to maybe look at some of those low risk, high reward interventions, deep breathing, mindfulness, that um, can maybe really help out with some of their gut symptoms. Sure, sure, I like that. And that's because that's a new tact, not necessarily maybe a new tact, but one that we haven't heard much because usually we're like fiber, fiber and yeah. carbs, right? Which of course matter as well, yeah. but. Yeah, nutrition matters a lot. It certainly does. I mean, obviously your gut is, a place where you put food and where digestion happens, absorption happens. So obviously the things you put into your gut are going to make a big difference when it comes to some of the symptoms you experience. Uh, but, you know, sometimes the psychological stuff gets neglected, particularly, you know, with athletes, it's not always the first thing people think of, but, you know, I think it's of anything you can do, it's, you know, mindfulness, deep breathing, that's really low risk. I mean, there's not much that's going to go wrong with that with, you know, good potential upside. Absolutely. Well, so another uh, phrase that you repeat quite a bit, um, again, for this crowd, not necessarily for maybe elite um, runners or cyclists, but 30 to 45 grams an hour for carbs for 60 to 90, anything over 60 to 90 minutes, right? So can you kind of unpack that a little bit and talk about the reason why we're looking for that? Yeah. So the carbohydrate recommendations, you know, they generally are most of the time meant for people who are trying to, you know, enhance their performance uh, to improve their time on a marathon or other prolonged exercise tasks that last at least, like you said, 60 to 90 minutes. The reason for that time threshold is anything that's less than that, for the most part, most people have enough carbohydrates stored away to get through 
a 30, 60 minute bout of exercise without depleting those carbohydrate stores, which we call glycogen. So during exercise, when we talk about consuming carbohydrate, usually it's not until you get to 60 to 90 minutes before consuming some carbohydrate from foods starts to have a benefit when you look at performance. Now, the, the 40 or 30 to 60 gram range, that kind of falls uh, in the amount that most studies have used and to, helps, uh, to help optimize gut comfort. Because when you start to get above like 40 to 50 to 60 grams an hour, I mean, that's a lot of food to ingest, even if it's like in the form of a gel. I mean, that's like three gels per hour. Sure. So it's not really something most athletes would try unless they're really, really high performance athletes who are really trying to push the boundaries of what their bodies can do to consume that amount. So for the average athlete, kind of a middle of the road approach is enough carbohydrate to make them feel better, to prevent a huge bonk uh, without overloading their gut. Yeah. And just, just for reference, you guys, I mean, so like, uh, like goo, we work with goo energy a lot. Um, so like there's about 22 grams of carbs in one of their gels mm -hmm. or 20 grams of carbs in one serving of their chews. So having two gels or, you know, two servings of chews would put you under 45 still. Yeah. I mean, like the best runners in the world, Kipchoge is probably the perfect example of someone who consumes a lot of carbohydrate during his marathons and reportedly uh, like during his Berlin uh, record setting run, not the two hour one, but the, the actual real marathon where you think it ran like a 201 mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. You know, he was consuming around like 90 grams an hour. And the reason he does that is because he probably cannot run that fast or set those records uh, unless he's entirely relying on carbohydrate as a fuel source because carbohydrate is a more efficient fuel than fat. If he starts to burn more fat, he's going to have to probably slow down. So he has to consume probably that amount to really maintain carbohydrate burning. You know, for a more middle of the road athlete, you know, uh, it, to burn some fat is not a big deal. And it's, it's something that your body naturally uses. And you don't need to go overboard with the amount of carbohydrate if you're not planning on setting, you know, records. I'm not, not so. planning on writing a 201 in Berlin anytime right, soon. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, so that's, that's a nice segue because, um, as we all know, carbs are the traditional source of fuel for athletes, but fat adaptation and running off of fat is those strategies are gaining popularity, especially among the ultra runners. So what do you attribute this to? And kind of, can you give us your take on it? You know, the trends, I think it's maybe partly this, those things change over time. I mean, I think the popularity of things like the ketogenic diets, uh, you know, paleo diets, things like that have started to move over into the athletic realm. So I think partly it's just timing. Sure. And then the other thing is just the increasing popularity of ultra uh, endurance events. More and more people are doing that stuff. And of any sort of event, I mean, that's the type of thing that you'd expect there to be um, maybe some benefits in some athletes, okay. right? Because the, the average intensity for those races is lower naturally than what you get with a half marathon or a full marathon even. And with lower intensities, generally people are burning more of their fuel in the form of fat. So your reliance on carbohydrate already in those situations is probably a bit lower. Um, so the idea there is like, if you can kind of train yourself to burn more fat naturally, uh, that maybe later on in that ultra race, once you actually start to run out of your carb stores, it's an easier transition for you to just rely exclusively on fat is the theory at least. 
you know, scientifically, it's hard to prove that high fat diets do confer a benefit for ultra athletes because, you know, think of the logistics of trying to recruit people for doing like a, a five hour run in the lab and having them go on one diet and switching to another. I mean, there are studies that have done stuff like that, but the sample sizes are really small and they're sure. a lot of times inconclusive. So, you know, that's a population where if you're going to try it, that would be the, the place to go is it's ultra races. If you want to you know, work with a, a higher fat, lower carb diet. Sure, sure. Well, and I mean, something that comes back, I mean, we get nutrition questions a lot, right? Fueling questions a lot. Um, and often, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, like, you know, rules, practice what you're doing, look for this amount more or less during, you know, for an hour of being on the road. But are we all an experiment of one? Or I mean, you know, I mean, I feel like some people like have iron stomachs and other people are like, I touched that and I'm going to have to run for the Port yeah. of John, you know? There's so much variability in how people respond to what you give them during exercise for, uh, for nutritional um, fueling options. I mean, I, just from my own studies, when I've had people on the treadmill, you know, some people, you can give them like a syrupy beverage that's super high in carbohydrate and they have little to no problem, uh, even if it's a large amount. And then others, you give them five ounces of it and they're about ready to throw up. Huh. Yeah, so it's amazing, honestly, how much variability there is between people with respect to the symptoms that they experience to the same intervention. So that's why, you know, when you look at studies, you see average effects, and that doesn't necessarily tell you about individual responses. So it's a, an annoying recommendation for athletes, I think, when you hear you need to do trial and error, because they just want a simple, hey, what am I supposed to do? An answer, but yeah. we, we can't really do that based off of a lot of the studies, because the differences are a lot of times pretty small between the groups and their averages. It doesn't tell you about how individual people respond. Sure. Sure. Okay. That said, I'm going to ask you <laughs> for some remedies, some recommendations for some, some common problems that pop up a lot. Sure. Um, so cramps, that's a big one, right? Um, not necessarily yeah. side stitches. We'll talk about that in a second, mm -hmm. but regular muscular cramps. Yeah. So cramps, uh, muscle cramps are like abdominal cramps. Well, let's do abdominal actually. Okay. So yeah, abdominal cramping, you know, it's kind of like related to side stitching sometimes, but you know, it's kind of usually in the lower half of the gut where it's almost feeling like your intestines are seizing up in a way yeah. or the muscles there are um, contracting more than they normally would. A lot of times that can stem from things like ingesting either just too much carbohydrate or the wrong type of carbohydrate, um, or that there's something in your small intestine that's not being efficiently absorbed. Okay, so in it, whether it's carbohydrate or sodium or a supplement like sodium bicarbonate, if you've got undigested stuff in your small intestine and it stays in your small intestine lumen, you know, the tube, eventually the water is going to get pulled out into the tube to kind of equate the osmolality or the concentration between your blood and the space in your intestinal lumen. Because your body doesn't like to have big differences in osmolality between different compartments. So, um, so that, to, to me, what I suggest is that there's something with maybe a lack of absorption going on. So you could look at, you know, your intake of carbohydrates. Um, it could be maybe you're consuming too much during exercise, or maybe you're consuming too many FODMAPs, which are 
fermentable um, oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols. I don't know if that's something you guys talk about on the podcast. We, at all. we have not, no, but I mean, I've, I've de- like you referenced the Runner's World article. I mean, it's definitely out there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, just describe what FODMAPs are. Yeah, not, not to overcomplicate things, but they're basically yeah. short chain carbohydrates that, and some people don't get absorbed very well. So okay. probably the most prominent ones are lactose and fructose. So uh, for whatever reason, some people just don't absorb those as efficiently. So again, if carbohydrate molecules are sitting in your gut, it ends up pulling water into that space, which can equate to loose stools. But also the cramping sensation that comes along with shifts in fluid, maybe is worse um, specific to cramping, some of those sensations are coming from. Uh, so that would be one place to start off, at least, would be to look at the quantity and, and type of carbohydrates you're consuming. Um, would be you know a starting point at least. Okay. Uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are another one that commonly cause cramps. So, for runners or athletes who are using high dose ibuprofen or Advil or um, those types of substances, either before, during a race, that's something to carefully take a look at because a, a common side effect of that is is GI cramps. That is good to know. Um, you also talk about um, having two sources of sugar in your carbs? And I mean, are most sports, first of all, why? And second of all, are most sports nutrition, like the gels, the goos, whatever, are they formulated to have two types typically? Yeah, so that's kind of getting back to what I was talking about with the multiple transportable carbohydrates with my you know, dissertation research. It's, it's just a fancy term for using different sugar types as you were saying. So the reason to maybe use a mixture of sugar types as opposed to one is that they rely on different protein transporters to get basically absorbed into your uh, intestinal cells and into your blood. Okay, so glucose uses a transporter called SGLT1. Fructose uses a transporter uh, called GLUT5. And both of those transporters kind of have an upper maximum amount that they can handle in any given hour. So both of them kind of get maxed out at about, you know, 40 to 50 grams an hour. So what that means is if you were trying to consume like 60 or 70 grams an hour of glucose, 10 to 20 grams of that glucose isn't going to get absorbed. And when you don't have glucose getting absorbed, it's going to cause issues in the gut. So this strategy really mostly makes sense for athletes who, again, are really pushing the boundaries of of carbohydrate intake, consuming more than like 50 grams an hour. If you're consuming 30 grams, I mean – you're not going to max out those transporters anyway, so it doesn't matter as much that you get a mixture of glucose and, and fructose um, because, you know, you're not going to max them out. So it, it is, again, more relevant for athletes who are kind of crushing carbohydrate during exercise. Okay. okay. Now, in terms of the products, a lot of them do have a mixture. Not all of them. I think, um, you know, I for one of my dissertation studies, I actually had a bunch of products chemically analyzed and a lot of the sports gels do have a mixture of glucose and fructose. So um, you'd have to look at the back of the label and the ingredient list to try and get a sense of whether they do or not. Sure. So I just got to ask, do you have a favorite kind of sports nutrition or is that like asking, you know, who a uh, TV news broadcaster is going to vote for? <laughs> Personally, you know, I don't, since I don't do, I mean, I still run, but it's, it's pretty shorter, shorter in duration than what it used to be. So I honestly don't use a lot of sports nutrition products myself. And there's so many out there that, I mean, there's something for everybody and it's a, you know, a little bit overwhelming sometimes I think for athletes to try and figure out yeah. what to go with. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, experiment and see what you like. Uh, 
I think sometimes just claims that companies are making, just, you know, obviously be a little bit skeptical about things that are overselling the benefits or the differences between products. Not to say that there aren't differences, but sometimes they get a little bit oversold in terms of this is going to be a product that doesn't cause you any GI distress. And that's, you know, I think that's sure. a, little, a little bit too much marketing. I agree. I agree. Okay. I'm um, going back to cramp side stitches. This one uh, kind of surprised me because basically there is no, it's basically like slowing down or walking, right? Until it's gone. If you're a runner. Yeah. Scientifically, there aren't studies that have really targeted it um, and shown things to be effective at really preventing it. But I mean, the idea here is that the most likely hypothesis is there's this peritoneum type lining in your abdominal cavity that's getting irritated. So, uh, you know, what the, the researcher that's done most of the work on this, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but, you know, he recommends, you know, things like avoiding concentrated carbohydrate beverages, maybe wearing a supportive belt, uh, stretching it out, um, a couple other things. But, it, you know, it's, there's good examples of athletes who have had this happen during a race and, you know, they either have to stop or slow down. I mean, I, it's honestly one that is more difficult to solve. Sure. Like sure. Des Linden had one um, during a half marathon uh, in Philadelphia a couple of years ago where you can see the video of her stop. She's winning the race. She stops and starts stretching out the side stitch. And the second place person almost caught up to her because, you know, um, because she stopped for maybe 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that one is tough to solve, to be honest, of any yeah. of them. Well, that's good to know. There is no solution. You just got to just gotta walk it out. I like it. Um, okay. And then, of course, the ones that land us in the porta potty. So whether it's diarrhea or, you know, just needing to go go poop, like what, like, is there anything that you, you see again and again that may be helpful for the average runner to think about? You know, it, it's, it kind of depends on the situation and the, the things that surround the symptoms. So uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I, it kind of sounds like I'm not giving clear recommendations, but if you kind of look at the book, what you start to understand is that for any given symptom, there can be multiple causes, and that includes, you know, urges to go number two. So I would have to, you know, think about what are the surrounding factors that are likely provoking that urge. It could okay. be anything from too much caffeine. Uh, it could be, again, the lack of absorption of carbohydrates. Uh, so maybe going on a lower FODMAP diet prior to competition, maybe tapering fiber intake reducing stress and anxiety because anxiety can provoke motility in the large intestine. So, I mean, even there, you've got four or five different things that you sure. want to take a look at as, as possibilities. Um, so yeah, for any athlete, you kind of need to take an inventory of the symptoms you're experiencing and then try and think about what are the surrounding factors that you think are most likely or possible uh, culprits for inducing those symptoms. But those would be a handful of them would be look at caffeine, uh, the, the types of carbohydrates you're consuming, uh, and then stress and anxiety uh, as potential uh, culprits for that issue. Um, okay, another section that surprised me was salt, because um, I know a lot of runners and triathletes swear by it to keep nausea at bay, but there's not a ton of evidence that, that supports that, right? No. So salt is, yeah, sodium and electrolytes are probably one of the more controversial topics in sport nutrition. And, you know, they're used for a lot of different reasons. That's what makes it a little bit challenging is athletes will use it for cramping. They'll use it for GI symptoms. They'll use it to, you know, um, to try and prevent like hyponatremia. So there's all sorts of reasons why athletes will decide to use electrolytes. 
you know, in the book, what I did was focus mostly on sodium because of the electrolytes, it's the one that you lose probably the most of in sweat. And it's the most prevalent electrolyte that you find in most supplements. And in terms of like its effects on performance and reducing muscle cramps, there's little to no direct evidence that it does that in the context of athletics. Okay. You know, so I'm not saying that sodium in a sports beverage is, is harmful or that replacing sodium in the diet isn't necessary for some athletes because it is. I mean, some athletes will sweat many grams of sodium throughout a day. But I'm, what I'm saying here is that during exercise itself, I don't know that it's particularly useful to focus on sodium. If you're losing a lot of sodium through your sweat, yes, you may need to replace that in your diet. But most athletes should not have major issues replacing sodium in their diet throughout the day. Um, the one exception is maybe during super prolonged stuff. Uh, there's a little bit more sound theory to think that maybe there's some benefit there. But scientifically, there aren't studies showing that. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part. So, you know, I, I, if, if athletes are using electrolyte tablets or supplements and they don't have any issues from them, you know, go for it. And you think it's a benefit. What I will say is that in high dosages, they can occasionally cause things like nausea uh, and vomiting. So uh, just be wary of that. And I would say target probably a few hundred milligrams, 500 milligrams per hour, if you want to use sodium, uh, and don't probably go much above that. Um, because you know your likelihood of having nausea in that case is going to be is high is going to be higher if you're using high dosages. Okay. Well, and again, I just the PSA here is try it right. Try it during a yeah. long training run. Try it during a long training ride. See what happens. Right. Instead of trying it the first yeah. day on race day. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. Um, a couple more questions. All right. So um, dehydration is comes up a lot as well, and um, there are more hydration theories out there than. I don't even know. There's so many. Um, and you come down to basically, for the most part, if you're running like a half marathon in the two hour range, you're drinking to thirst, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable approach for most athletes who are doing something that lasts a couple hours with the assumption that you're starting off exercise pretty well hydrated. Mm -hmm. If for some reason, you know, you did not drink enough the day beforehand, then plausibly there's more of a benefit to taking a more aggressive approach. But for most people, assuming they're relatively well hydrated starting out, it's just not long enough of an activity to lose enough body fluids to impair performance in most cases. All right. Um, so yeah, I think to just make things simple, drinking to thirst for most athletes in short events is probably going to be optimal uh, in most cases. Now, if, if you're yeah, exercising up? really hard in a really yeah. hot and humid environment, then maybe there's some exceptions to that rule. Um, but if anything in the sports nutrition world, I just said electrolytes were controversial. Hydration is one that probably is even more controversial when it comes to what's the appropriate approach to take. Um, sure. There's a kind of a drink to thirst group. And then there's a group that a lot of times says you need to be more structured about preventing a, a certain percentage of your you know, body weight loss uh, during exercise. Sure, sure. Well, and what about if you go up to, so we, we come off, you know, maybe a, a 215 half marathon, and that translates to a five hour marathon. And you get to that point in a race, you know, I think we've all been there where you're just nauseous, like you don't want to, you don't want to eat anymore, you don't want to drink anymore. Mm -hmm. But you're say at 345 into, like I said, finishing around five hours, like, you've got to keep, keep hydrating and fueling, right? Do you, or do you respect the nausea? <laughs> Yeah, it's so I would say, you know, you need to take uh, 
an individual approach and think about at that moment, you know, if, if, especially if a person's not running that fast, you have to remember that their sweat rate is probably on the lower side. So you don't want to over encourage drinking. Okay. And I'll, so I'll mention that for your, your listeners, because you probably have more uh, individuals who are middle of the pack and stuff like that, where the biggest determinant of sweat rates is just how fast you're going. So sure. people who win marathons or who are in the top third or something like that have larger sweat losses. People in the middle of the pack or towards the back of the pack, their sweat rates can be pretty low. And, you know, you don't, in most cases, you don't need to drink like at every aid station. So you might want to, again, during training, go out for, you know, an hour or two at the pace you think you're going to be running at during the marathon or walking, jogging at it during the marathon. Uh, measure your weight before and afterwards, account for how much you're drinking and looking at, looking at truly how much are you sweating and are you actually losing any weight? If you're not losing any weight, then clearly you don't need to be drinking anymore sure. uh, in that situation. But to get to the nausea, um, yeah, the, the trouble with hydration is that both underhydration and overhydration can cause nausea. So I don't want to give a explicit recommendation to say drink more or continue to sure. drink because theoretically someone could be hyponatremic and that could be causing their nausea. Yeah. Um, they cause it for different reasons. So with underhydration, maybe it's a additional lack of blood flow to the guts because you just have less blood volume going around. With overhydration, you've got fluid overload and some of that fluid can go from your vascular space into your brain, cause swelling uh, and induce uh, nausea. So sure. uh, yeah, it needs to be a little bit of a situation specific recommendation and take a look at uh, the factors at that given time in the athlete and um, that'll dictate what they you know, should or shouldn't do. Sure, sure. Um, okay, uh, last question. This is kind of more uh, uh, just to your take on things. So a lot of the studies that you cite in your book um, use male cyclists as the subjects. Um, and so do you see, first of all, why is that? And then do you see more studies using females moving forward and more runners? I mean, you, you do have some running ones for sure, but yeah. I feel like there are a lot of like ultra events. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that more studies have not used women as subjects. And that's you know true for not only sports nutrition research, but a lot of even medical research. I think it's getting better, but you still see a disparity even in studies to a large degree that are coming out now. I mean, for a lot of my own studies, I've used a mixture of, of men and women. Uh, but sometimes you still get more men just because they end up uh, contacting you more or something like that. Sure. Uh, so it's a hard problem sometimes to get at. But you're right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the studies not only uh, focus more on cycling, but on, on men. And I think there's two reasons for that. For nutritional interventions during exercise, it's just a heck of a lot easier to feed people on a cycle ergometer than it is when they're running on a treadmill. Sure. They have less GI issues, so it's more likely someone's going to finish your study if, if uh, they're doing something with a cycle ergometer. And then uh, when it comes to women, I think part of it has been that traditionally men have participated more in endurance races. That's not really true anymore to a large degree, but in the seventies and eighties, that was in nineties, even that was certainly true. And the other thing is sometimes as a scientist, you get hammered uh, on a paper when you submit it, if you don't tightly control things like the menstrual cycle yeah. and, that, and that's difficult to account for, especially, you know, if you have women using uh, contraceptives and stuff like that, it gets kind of messy and you know, you want to include more women, but then you know they're gonna, you know, they're gonna hammer you if you didn't tightly, tightly control that stuff. And as a subject, it's difficult to participate in studies um, when you tightly control that stuff. So I, it's it's a problem that I need to, you know, we need to get better at. 
Sure. And it's unfortunate that we haven't had more women in some of these studies because, you know, I think a lot of this stuff probably transfers pretty well to women, but not everything necessarily. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I mean, I wasn't, I definitely, I appreciate your explanation. Definitely not um, hounding you in no, in, I, individually, it's, but it's, it's, a, it's interesting. It's a field-wide problem. I mean, uh, you know, we need to get better at that for sure. Yeah. Um, and like I said, some of my studies have been a good mixture of men and women. Um, you know, especially I've done quite a bit of survey research and a lot of them are pretty equally men and women. Um, so uh, cool. the lab gets a little bit more complicated because of the menstrual cycle thing and, and trying to make sure you standardize that as best as possible um, when you need to. Yeah. Um, you don't always need to do that, but in cases where it's justified, it definitely makes the study design more complicated. Totally. Which um, is a reason not to do it, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more question. Do you have any studies going on right now or has COVID kind of stalled anything? <laughs> Uh, in terms of the lab studies, it's stalled right now for sure. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, I, I, I traditionally do a couple of survey projects every year. I don't have anything right now that I'm actively recruiting for, but there's a good uh -huh. chance over the summer into the fall I'll be having uh, some projects available. We might actually do try and do some sort of intervention study with runners um, virtually uh, at some point here in the next, you know, half a year to year. Uh, because, you know, who knows what's going to happen with uh, the current uh, pandemic. So sure. uh, it's hard to predict with lab-based studies and person research what's going to really, you know, be happening in the next you know, half year to a year or so. Yeah. And how, how do you recruit your people? I mean, if someone's listening and they wanted to be a part of it, is that a, is that a possibility or do you want people in your local area or? If I do something virtually, it's usually it's open to anybody is assuming they meet like basic criteria. In a lot of the studies I do, it's, you know, people who are running a certain mileage or something like that. Sure. But it's usually open to a wide range of, of people, whether they're elite to, you know, very recreational. So, um, you know, they can always follow my Twitter feed. Um, and if I have a study going on, I'll usually put it on there, post it on there with the recruitment information. Um, so yeah, that's something they can check out maybe over cool. the summer, um, keep an eye on because, you know, there's a good chance at some point relatively soon we'll have some sort of uh, online or virtual project that would be available for people to participate in cool brings some brings another dimension of meeting to our running so that's always fun yeah um well thank you patrick that was really fun again um his book is the athlete's gut and we'll link to that in the show notes of this podcast we'll also link to his twitter account so you can follow that and um here's to uh staying healthy and happy and um a lot more good stuff ahead to both of us yeah, thanks for the invite. Uh, invite. Uh, it was fun talking about this stuff, and um, hope everybody stays healthy. Take care. All right.